What did you inherit from your parents? I don't mean like wealth. <laughs> what are the things that you're like, oh, that's dad? I have a few of those things. You could talk to Haley, pull her aside afterwards, and she could tell you every bit of Kevin Proud that is alive in me. This week, we're going to be looking at a chapter in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 9, where we're seeing the story of Gideon's son, Abimelech. Now, if you remember with us last week, we were looking at the story of Gideon. Gideon was one of the judges of Israel, this this fearful and cynical man that God approaches and raises up and uses as a leader to liberate his people from the oppression of the Midianites. That, that God used someone who was doubtful that God could even use him, someone who had to test God constantly to, to reassure himself that he was doing what God uh, wanted him to, or at least that God was trustworthy. And we read later in Gideon's life, he actually strays from the path of following God, where he sets up idols in his hometown, where uh, people come to worship these idols there, and they turn away from God, who had been faithful to them. This week, we're going to kind of pick up on the next generation, and I want to focus a little bit on some of the things that happened in the meantime. We read kind of in between chapters 8 and 9, at the tail end of the story of Gideon, that Gideon had a whole lot of wives, and he had 70 plus kids. I think that's a record for anyone. When we had our third kid, we were officially above average in like number of kids in the community. Now, like 70 kids, you're, you're pretty much the size of Montague at that point. But he had a ton of wives and 70 kids, but he also had a child by a concubine, a woman who wasn't quite a wife in status, but, you know, they got to know each other. And she lived in a town called Shechem, and they had a kid that was named Abimelech. Now, Abimelech, in in Hebrew, it means my father is king. And you may remember from the story of Gideon, towards the end of his life, the people of Israel, because he freed them from the Midianites, they come to, to Gideon and they say, you need to be our king. Like, we want you to not just be this judge, not just this kind of military leader, we want you to be king. And Gideon, wisely, says no. But Abimelech, this, this kind of child, the like stepson who, who is over in Shechem, he kind of takes on this identity of, well, they wanted my dad to be king. What about me? What also happened in the time between Gideon and the story that we're looking at is the people of God, they strayed so far from, from God. They started worshiping the gods of the nations around them, the Canaanites, their god Baal. And they started to kind of merge the two faiths together. And so we'll read in this chapter that they worship the god Baal Berit, which means Baal of the covenant. So it's like the covenant god that Israel worshipped, who made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai that you would be my people. It's like a merger of that and the religion of the Canaanites. They weren't worshipping Yahweh, the god of Israel. They were worshipping this kind of mixture of blending the two. And we see throughout the story that it's, it's this weird blend of, of pretending they're faithful to the God who made a covenant with them, but they look more like the Canaanites around them. Here's where we're going to pick up the story. 
Abimelech, one of the sons of Gideon, wants to be king. His dad was offered the position. He turned it down. And once his dad dies, Abimelech says, okay, I want the throne. But what Abimelech does is he goes to the people of Shechem, where he was from, and and he says to them, listen, I should probably be king. You guys should make me king because my dad was Gideon. And they're like, you're from here. You're an ambitious young guy. Sure, we'll back you. And what they do is they fund him from from the treasury of the temple of Baal Berith. That he's funded by by what's given an offering to worship to this false god. And what he does is he hires a bunch of mercenaries. All these uh, in the, um, uh, I forget what my translation calls them, but mercenaries, these, these scoundrels essentially is, is kind of the language that's used. And they march down to, to Gideon's hometown and they slaughter all of Abimelech's brothers. Seventy brothers, it says, were slaughtered on one stone. There was probably a big rock in the middle of the town. And almost in this like religious ritual killing ceremony, they slaughtered all 70 of them. Well, almost all 70. One survives. A guy named Joash. He survives and he runs off into safety. But Abimelech, having killed all of his brothers, all the other sons except one of Gideon, returns back to Shechem and he says, listen, there's no other heirs to Gideon's claim. You might as well make me king. And so they crown Abimelech the king of Shechem. They want him to be their king in the place of Gideon. Now, just as the crowning ceremony is taking place, the brother that survived, uh, it's not Joash, sorry, Jotham. All these names, right? Jotham. Thank you. Jotham, he shows up, he stands up on a cliff from the mountain that overlooks Shechem, and he, he pronounces this curse and speaks this riddle over the people of Shechem who had, who had crowned Abimelech king. He says this. He says that the trees wanted to, to place a king over them. The, the trees wanted to, to raise up a king, to be the king of the trees. And so they asked the olive tree. And the olive tree says, well, no, my, my oil that I produce is, is, is desired by God and by people, and, and I can't be the king. And so they go from the olive tree and they go to the grapevine. And they say, would you be the king over us? And the grapevine says to the rest of the trees, no, I can't be king because the wine that I produce is desired by God and by people and I can't be king over you. And so the trees go to the thorn bush and say, would you be king over us? And the thorn bush says, darn right I will. And if you don't make me king, fire will come out from me and consume all of the trees and destroy everything. What he's saying here in this riddle, as we kind of reflect on it, is that when those worthy of leading turn you down, you have hastily crowned someone unworthy and dangerous to rule over you. Someone unworthy and dangerous now will have the power. And this is what... Uh, Jotham says 
in verses 16, and we'll jump down to 20 afterwards. He says, Have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jerubal, that's another name for Gideon, and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? And down in verse 20. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Here Jotham is pronouncing a curse. He's saying, let, let the danger and the, the violence that you guys have brought about this kingship with fall on you if what you've done isn't above board. If you have actually conspired and been murderous and, and have done things in such an upside-down, violent, greedy way, let that same violence fall upon you. May you be destroyed with the way that you have destroyed others. And do you know what's strange and should stand out to us as we're reading this? Is that even though Jotham kind of pronounces this curse, we read in the story that God is actively working to fulfill this curse. God is directly acting. If we go down to verse 22, this should stand out to us. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. Your translation might even say that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. Now, like, let's not put our heads in like God sent some kind of like demonic being there to, to be with them, but that God created conflict between them. He stirred up rivalry and bitterness so that what was taking place between them would escalate. We read in verse, uh, uh, verse 24, God did this in order that the crimes against Jerubal, Gideon's, 70 sons, the shedding of their blood might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. This is kind of the beginning of God acting in Abimelech's story. And we'll read at the very end of the story. It's almost like book-ended by this explanation of God's action. Because we'll read again in verse 56 and 57. Thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech that he had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. And God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal, Gideon, came on them. We need to see, and this should stand out to us like a sore thumb, that God is acting directly in this story to bring about justice for Gideon's sons, to to show that the violence of Abimelech and the people of Shechem only results in more and more death, never in the resolution that they want. We need to see that in this story, God doesn't see Abimelech as the the rightful king. In fact, he's not even a judge. This is in the book of Judges. He's got a good amount of space given to him, but he's not a judge. He wasn't raised up by God. He wasn't used by God to drive out the foreign nations that were oppressing Israel. God wasn't condoning his actions. This man wasn't on God's side, so to speak. In fact, God sets himself up against him. He actively works against Abimelech 
and the people who conspired with him in violence and bloodshed. So what happened? What happened when God brings about this animosity between them? Well, all of a sudden, three years later, this rival gang comes up in Shechem. And they say, why are you guys following Abimelech? You know that, like, he's a pretty cruel guy, and we could probably, like, overthrow him and get him out of town. And, and all of a sudden, there's, like, this movement of people who are like, yeah, do you know what? We don't need to listen to Abimelech. Like, let's, let's get him. And so this rival gang comes up, and they, uh, they hide people in the fields to try to attack Abimelech as he's coming. But Abimelech is tipped off to this, and he knows what, what's going on, and he just he kills everybody. He kills the whole rival gang. And then in his anger that the people of Shechem sided with this gang, he goes and he brings his army towards Shechem, and he kills everyone in the city. And the women and children that are left over, they flee to the temple of Baal Barith. And, and Abimelech and his army, they go cut down trees and they, they bring the wood to this temple and they burn it down with everyone inside. It's brutal. It's bloody. It's violent. And it shows us the character of Abimelech and, and those who are with him. It even mimics the, 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 the riddle that, that Jotham had said before that if you don't make me king, fire will spread out from me and consume all the trees of Lebanon. We see his bloodthirstiness, this brutality. And, and after he, he burns down this temple and, and destroys the city, he sprinkles salt all, all over it so that no crops could ever grow there again. And then he's not satisfied. His, his bloodlust continues, and so he rides with his armies to the town of Thebes not far away. And he does the same thing. He lays siege. Everybody hides in a tower. And he's like, we're going to burn it down again like we did over in Shechem. And as he's there, and they're lighting the matches to burn the place down, a woman who's up on the roof of the tower takes a stone and drops it down and cracks Abimelech's skull. And we see Abimelech in this this bloodlust, but also in this embarrassment that, like, a woman knocked me down. He's like, I can't die because of a woman. And so he asks his armor bearer who's with him, like, kill me, because I don't want my reputation to be a woman killed me. You're going to have to, like, run me through with your sword. And so his right-hand man ends up killing him. It's a great story, isn't it? This is the Bible for us. What we see in this story of Abimelech is this brutal irony that the man who had once killed his 70 brothers on one stone is eventually put to death by a single stone being dropped on his head. What we see that the the man who in his bloodlust and his violence goes and slaughters towns The conflict from his own violence and bloodshed is brought back on him and eventually destroys the city that conspired with him and takes his own life. We even read at the end of the story, once he dies, people just, they just scatter. They really didn't have any loyalty to him. They were just scared of his violence. As soon as Abimelech was dead, the people just went on their way. 
But this highlights a major element in this story. That violence begets violence. That death and evil just continue to spread when this is the means of of getting your ends and nobody ends up winning. Nobody wins. It just all descends into chaos and death and brutality. In fact, Abimelech in this story, if you remember kind of the cycle of judges where Israel would serve God and then uh, they would start worshiping foreign gods and then God would send one of the foreign nations to oppress them and then raise up a judge and then they'd be at peace again before the cycle continued. Abimelech isn't in the place in this story where he is the, um, the judge to save the day. He's, he's not like the, the king over the people in kind of the, the relationship of the cycle. In fact, he is so much like the people of Canaan in his, his bloodthirstiness, in his worship of Baal Barit, that he actually, as an Israelite, acts as the foreign oppressing power in the paradigm. He's so far from even what his father's legacy was. What he did pick up from his his father wasn't a rightful title to kingship. What he picked up from his father wasn't uh, the the ability to to do great things by the power of God even with little. What he picks up from his father is his commitment to, to brutality and bloodshed that we see at the end of his life. His vengeance. What we should see also, and and this is kind of diving in a little bit deeper, is his death at the end by a woman dropping the stone on his head should remind us back um, to the story of of Deborah and Barak, where the foreign general Sisera was killed by a woman who drove a tent peg through his head. Do you remember that story? We watched the online service for that one. That was was in the circuit breaker. But Abimelech, even though he was an Israelite, is acting so much like the foreign power that his death mirrors a woman killing him with a tent head, just like this woman drops the millstone on his head. He's not the good guy in the story. God sets himself up against him. What we see in this story is Abimelech is so used to getting what he wants by means of violence and bloodshed. He wants to be king, and so who do I need to kill in order to get there? I want to keep control of Shechem. Who do I have to kill in order to do that? I don't want any rumors or dissension to spread, so what towns do I need to burn down in order to still be in charge? The kingship of Abimelech is so strongly contrasted with the one that judges ultimately makes us long for, the King Jesus. Like, if you were to compare the way that Abimelech handles himself as king and the way that Jesus, the true and right king of the universe, displays himself as king, it is like brutally opposite. Where Abimelech is the one who seeks to gain and seize and hang on to control through bloodshed, Jesus, the one true king, is depicted as enthroned by taking on the cross and shedding his own blood. Jesus, uh, Jesus, in contrast to Abimelech's 
commitment to, to violence and brutality and bloodshed and killing, Jesus taught very strongly when it came to violence. In fact, you may remember, like on one of the most significant nights of Jesus' life, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is, he is praying fervently that the cross would not have to, to, to be a reality. He prays that this cup would pass from him. But ultimately, the guards come, and they, they come to arrest Jesus. And, and it is this, this, like, it's military. It's guards. They've got their weapons. They're coming to get him. And Peter pulls his sword, right? He's ready to defend Jesus by means of violence, whatever means necessary. Do you remember Jesus' response to Peter? He says, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. I think that's what we see in Abimelech's life. The one who is so eagerly willing to draw the sword ends up dying by the sword, or by a stone in this case. The one who killed many on the stone was killed by a stone dropped on his head. Violence was never the way of bringing about the ends that was desired. It just causes things to descend deeper and deeper into evil. Here's what I love about the work of Christ, though. Is that Jesus, in his words to Peter, and like, Let's not pretend it was like a a sanitized classroom scene where Jesus is teaching this, right? He's not like sitting down with a theology textbook and saying, violence isn't the answer, put away your sword. He's saying this to Peter as like the, the troop of guards are coming to arrest him. They've got their own swords and spears and they're a rowdy bunch ready to arrest Jesus. Like it's in the heat of the moment that Jesus says no violence isn't the answer. The one who draws the sword will die by the sword. And Peter, we see this this change take place in him over time. This man who, you know, we read in the Gospels is like the brash disciple, the like shoot first, ask questions later guy, the, the, the bold disciple with often the best of intentions, just, man, we're a lot like Peter sometimes. But we see throughout his life him being shaped and transformed by the work of the Spirit in his life. To shape him from being someone whose first reaction is to draw the sword to become someone who, in fact, is shaped by the teaching and life of Jesus. Let me point you to some words that Peter wrote later in his letter of 1 Peter. He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Then he quotes a psalm. He says, for whoever would love love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their, their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I think that's what we saw in Abimelech's story. That in his commitment to violence, the face of the Lord was against him. 
in his syncretism between, oh, the God of the covenant is actually Baal and violence is his way of doing things. This syncretism of, I'm going to pretend it's kind of like the God who gave us the promised land, but I'm going to go about it my own violent ways. I think sometimes we see that syncretism in our own lives and in our own society where, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll use the terminology of Jesus and religion and Christianity, but my means of going about what I'm looking for isn't the way of Jesus. It's actually the way of the violent culture around me. I'm just going to baptize it with religious language. We're using the, the title of Jesus, but not the way of Jesus. Sometimes we fall into a similar syncretism of using titles that sound like the Christian way, but the way itself looks more like the nations around us. And so our hope, our hope in Christ, rather than in the violence and might of Abimelech, is that he is actually able to transform lives. We see it in Peter, a violent, brash man who becomes someone who promotes the teaching of Jesus when it comes to violence. We see it in the lives that are transformed by the Spirit where we're shaped less to be less like the culture and the ways around us and more into the character of Christ. So that we perhaps would be able to avoid where Abimelech falls into of, of syncretizing the worship of, of Yahweh with the worship of Baal, and we would actually be those who wholeheartedly are following the way of Jesus. Rather than claiming Christianity, but going about it in the violent means of the world around us. Jesus is the way, and his way is better. The way of violence and of the world leads to destruction and death. Fire will go out from the thorn bush and burn everything down. Jesus brought the violence upon himself to bring us peace. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our hope. You are our king. You are a true king whose life is different and greater than Abimelech greater than his life that brought destruction, who sought his own ends. But Jesus, you actually brought violence upon yourself in order to give us life. Jesus, would we find our hope in you and in your way? We pray for your Spirit's work in our hearts so that we would be those who look more like you and your way than the way of the culture and the world and the violent ways around us the violence of our own hearts, if we're honest. So Jesus, would you reign in our lives as our King? Would we submit to you as our Lord and find life in you through it? It's in your name we pray. Amen.